0: Good morning, Refuge Church. I'm excited to bring the word to you guys again today. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open up with me to Genesis chapter three. We start in Genesis chapter three today to kind of kick us off as we continue our journey through Exodus. We are definitely in the home stretch of this book, uh, and have been. It's been exciting for me to, to see so much of what we've been talking about culminate, but at the same time, it, it's such a dramatic shift from where we started that today I hope to try to tie a lot more together for us as we look not just at Genesis and Exodus, but also as we continue to look forward into the new covenant. It can be really easy for us in Exodus to really so much separate where we are here at Sinai from what we just experienced a a few weeks ago, really, for us, but but for them even not that much long ago when they were in Egypt. I mean, this is the same book uh, of the plagues. This is the same book... Uh, of the the journey out and, and the Red Sea, it, it is the same kind of kind of total package and so for us, as we are here today looking at something rather instructional and very the weird specificities of scripture it 's easy for us to separate these two things when they 're meant to be one solid united package for us. so uh, with that today we 're going to use the title there and back again. There and back again, if you have your Bibles, please open up to Genesis 3, starting in verse 23 and 24. Let's read this together. It says, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, Adam, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, ever since Genesis 3, ever since Eden, it has been a question of how do we get back? How do we get back to where we were? How do we get back to God, really, is what we're talking about. I mean, we were there, how do we go back again? We have now separate from Him. We were in the presence of God. We were having communion with Him. We were walking with Him in the cool of the day, as it says. But now we're separate. There are warrior angels standing at the only entrance into the garden with a flaming sword that is turning every way to guard the way to the tree of life, to communion with God. So how do we get back again? How do we get... Eden. And as we look at this question of struggling to get back to Eden, we see developments a book later. So from Genesis three to Exodus three. Flip back over there for me. In Exodus chapter three, eleven through twelve, we see again that theme verse that we've been talking about a good deal in this uh the series. And that's this start of the fulfillment really moving and a new way that's separate from the uh from the patriarchs, separate from the patriarchs of of Genesis and moving into now of course Moses and, and Israel as a whole and in Exodus 311 and 12 it says but Moses said to God who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and then this is this is the this is the promise this is the important part verse 12 he said God said I will be with you I will be with you And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And so we can see since Genesis 3 to Exodus 3 that God has already always been making the way. He's been making the way for his people to get back, to get back to him, to get back to to Eden. We've seen this promise over the past three weeks, the fulfillment of it. At Sinai, they are at the mountain. They are worshiping Him. And they have sealed the covenant as we talked about last week. But the question that we do have to still ask is, yes, this promise has been fulfilled. The sign that He said He would give, He's done. But are they back yet? Are they back to Eden yet? Now that they are in relationship in covenant, we want to know the question, do they know Him? Do they know their God? How do they know their God. And we're going to see today the instructions of particularly of the tabernacle and the instructions of how to engage God in worship. There's a good bit of that in the covenant scroll that we talked about last week. But here we're talking about the everyday ordinariness, just like last week, of worshiping God in his place and his way on his terms. How can they know their God daily now? so we need to start with a question for us. How do you know your God? The Israelites are getting ready to find out how they can know Him daily. How do you know your God daily? How do you walk with Him? If we want to talk about Eden, going back and having that communion with God, how do you walk with Him? As you prepare for a regular... <laughs> We don't have those right now. Ordinary, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. Sunday, how do you prepare your heart to gather? When you think about your regular rhythms prior to quarantine, and you would show up on Sunday, how did you prepare your heart to gather with the saints? And then, of course, I would also want to know, how do you talk to Him? How do you talk to Him? How do you talk to God? How do you know Him and speak to and with Him? Let's pray today. Father God, as we look at this passage today, we pray that you would meet us, even as you give us the terms to go and meet you at the tabernacle. Father, we pray for, for wisdom to see uh, so much how we are looking at Jesus here. And Father, I pray that we're able to tie it back well to him. Father, that we might see him and appreciate Jesus Christ in such a new in a profound way, in a relational way, in a way that we can know you, oh, Father, soften our hearts to to see that even in things such as the detail of the measurements and the materials and the and the regulations of the tabernacle, that we don't we don't lose sight of you. This is a special text, just like the rest of the scriptures. Father, let us not lose sight of that. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, one more jump, okay? John chapter 14. John chapter 14. John writes his gospel in a way that people might know that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God. Uh, the other gospel writers have a different emphasis on how they present Jesus, but John has an emphasis that He is God. It's a, he starts with John 1 and that kind of creation account. But as we move through his gospel, you see uh, this this tying together of Jesus and the Father. And in John 14, if we want to talk about how we can know God, let's listen to what Jesus says on that account. Verse 1 of chapter 14, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Verse 4, you know the way to the place I am going. We often hear that verse when we recount that, you know, big house, right? With many rooms. We don't hear that one. You know how to get to the place where I'm going. Verse 5, Thomas says, I think what most of us would say, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know Me, you will know My Father as well. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know Me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen Me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. And so we very much can see a picture of Israel here standing at Sinai, and the the evidences of what God has done for the Israelites against Egypt, on the journey back in Egypt. Believe at least the evidence of the works themselves, God would say. You saw me. You saw the cloud. You saw the fire. You see the stones. You saw the sea. You saw the pillar of fire. You've seen it all. Believe the works. And You might come here and worship me and know me. So we know that we can know the Father, especially in the New Covenant, through Jesus Christ. Let's examine how exactly the Father set this up for the Israelites, that we might see that Jesus does the same thing, but better. First thing I want you to see today is this, the provision of the Father, the provision of the Father. We're covering a lot of ground in our passage today. We're covering chapter 25, 26 and 27. We're leapfrogging a little bit to cover 35 through 40. So I, I hope that you have uh, taken the time in the sermon prep to read through all of that in advance. It's a lot of material. No, we're not going to read it. We got to read a lot um, last week, but we can't this week. What I hope that you can see though is that in these passages in the first really three chapters that we're covering, you see the instructions from God Himself, and then later in the book in 35 through 40, you see not a repetition. But a confirmation, not a, not a. He's repeating himself, but it's important that you see that the people then did what God said, and so it describes the actual construction of the tabernacle in thirty-five through forty. And so we're going to talk about those components today of the tabernacle and and what they mean and what we can see from them. And so the first thing is the provision of the Father. One of the first things that we see uh, in chapter. 25 is this idea of gathering up the materials in order to construct the tabernacle. And so the first thing that we see is these contributions. The instructions for the tabernacle, uh, God's planning for them, begins with a heart check. It begins with a heart check. God is first and foremost concerned with... The heart is something that we have to remember as, as your pastors often, and we want to jump to pragmatics, we want to jump to practicals to help you. Because we, we love you, we want to care for you, we want to help. But for us, as we lead you, and for you as you do the work of the ministry, we need to remember that God is always concerned with the heart first. And so we have to make sure that we do heart checks first. It's is is so foundational in this type of counseling that we do, is that we pastor, we counsel, we shepherd The heart. That's what you do in DNA. You shepherd your own hearts. God is concerned about the heart. And it's interesting because Psalm 1 really functions in the same way as this kind of heart check for how we engage God. Psalm 1 is kind of the same picture that we'll be describing today later as we talk about walking into the presence of the tabernacle of the temple. And so that first Psalm, if you want to flip there and read that uh, later, it, it's this gateway, this opening t- door, as it were, to, to the whole book of Psalms, that the people who would genuinely worship God must embrace His law, His covenant instruction, uh, these things that He's telling us today in our passage. And so the purpose of that is that the people who want to be that worshiper, who sing that psalm, are those who would own its values. The things that it, it holds up as important are lofty. They want to be people of the Torah who believe it, who see themselves as the heirs and stewards of its story of redemption and hope, who seek to carry out its moral requirements. And so ultimately, those worshipers can delight in the idea of being among the righteous, feeling that nothing can compare with such a blessedness as to be God's people, the people of the covenant. And so when you look at Psalm 1, you see this contrast that it reminds us that in the end, there's really only two ways to live. People blessed by God in covenant relationship and people who love the world and are destined for destruction. There's really only two ways. And it's easy for us in our culture to become a little syncretist and and open up so many different ways to God. There are only two ways to live. And so we see here in our passage in chapter 25 that it begins with worship. Just as we've noted throughout Exodus already, we saw that when it came to the building of the altar at the end of chapter 20. We see that worship always precedes the instruction of God. Now, what are they asked to do? What what is this worship and and heart check? God asked them to go to the people and collect all the materials needed for the building of the tabernacle and all of its components. What does this mean? Valuables. (laughs) Valuables. But notice this, it's not compulsory. God wanted people to give. He wanted those, it says, whose heart moves him to give. God doesn't force our worship and he doesn't force our giving, but he does call for it. we, We have got to recognize that God calls for worship and he calls for giving. There are demands that he can make, but he doesn't force it. Now, this offering that we see needed here certainly calls for sacrifice. And what is sacrifice? We use it a lot. I want to kind of define it here, but it's it's denying yourself, denying yourself something, whatever it may be, but generally your heart, denying your heart and following the path that God sets for you. And so the people were called to give, give gold, give generously for the construction of the tabernacle, but it was whose heart moves him. And so a question for us today is, how are you being moved to sacrifice? Is your heart moving you to generosity? Is your heart moving you to worship? Is your heart moving you to sacrifice? How are you being moved to sacrifice? We talked about either last week or the week before about Romans 12.1 being that living sacrifice that we do as a people. The once and for all sacrifice has been made. And now our job is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, it says, to be given to God. And so how are you being moved to sacrifice? Now keep in mind, all of these things were provided for them. The, this section that we're talking about is the provision of the Father. The things that they're being asked to give by God are things that have been provided for them. They didn't go and find and mine and refine this gold on their own. They looted the Egyptians. God said that they would be able to leave Egypt with great wealth from the hands of the Egyptians. All they had to do really was ask the Egyptians and you see that they just give it to them. By the hand of God, they give it to them. They looted Egypt. And so it's interesting that here and here God calls us to sacrifice those things that are actually His anyways. He owns it all. And He asks us to give of that which He has given us. Next thing I want you to see is the oil for the lamp. The oil for the lamp. We're going to talk about the lampstand in the next section, but let's talk about the oil itself for the lamp here as we're talking about the provision of the Father. So we have those contributions that we just talked about. That was for the building of the tabernacle. That was pretty much all up front. Like we need it so we can use it and construct it. But there was an ongoing reminder of sacrifice too by the priests collecting oil from the people for the lamps. Now there was a high standard for this oil. It was to be pure oil from crushed olives. And so they would regularly go to the people and collect the oil that the lamps might be able to continue to burn I think it 's interesting too, though, that he requires olive oil, and you ask why olive oil, why is that prescribed? why does it have to be that kind of thing? well I think that it 's interesting, as I looked into olive oil that olive oil is about as pure of a representation as you could get for this effect for this for this need of, of creating fuel for for light uh, there, there really was no better um, Thing that they could have used, even low-grade olive oil is still 99% pure fuel. It, it doesn't smoke or, or soot. It, if it's spilled, it doesn't ignite and catch fire and burn down the tabernacle. Olive oil, even low-grade, is 99% pure. Now, when we're dealing with a fallen world, I mean, even a, a, a unblemished or spotless lamb is still not perfectly pure, right? the representation of being 99.999% effective, pure, holy, still registers. And so you have this olive oil that represents this purity, this holiness that gives off the light that we're going to talk about of God. So for us, when we think about that living sacrifice of Romans 12, it definitely echoes here. But if we could just put a different application or a different spin on it, I want to put some functional feet to this, not just a spiritual heart posture of worship and a pouring out of our life that we can kind of talk about often, but not just word, but deed as well. Functional care for others. When we look at the New Testament, the New Covenant, and we look at this expectation of ongoing giving, ongoing care for others, we have Philippians 2 describing the humility of Christ. Of course, but in verses three and four it says, "Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Uh, I, I really want to preach this passage, and and Pastor Dave has been reading Philippians. I'm sorry, yeah, Philippians to us a lot lately. Um, but in here, you have really this kind of permanent posture. Not just a Roman's posture of worship, but a functional everyday, count others more significant than yourselves. Look out for them. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It doesn't mean total self-denial. Please, church, take care of your own interests. That's often where crisis comes, is when people neglect caring for themselves or their own family. We're to do that. But we're also to look out for the interests of others as we think about this community giving for the oil of the lamp, it's an ongoing representation of care for others by contributing to the ongoing needs of the tabernacle. The light that is then created is created for all. So we have the oil for the lamp. We have the contributions to build the thing. And then the final really good picture, I think, of provision here is the table for the bread. The table was made of acacia wood and covered in gold. Now, more important than the table itself was its function. What did it hold? The table for the bread held 12 loaves of bread, symbolizing God's people, Israel. One loaf for each of the 12 tribes. Now, that's a nice picture, but what is it, a reminder of just that they exist? No. It's a reminder that every tribe plays a role in God's family. Each tribe had a seat at the table. If you take one loaf away, it's no longer a united family. It's no longer a united family. Each loaf, each tribe has a role to play. I think it's important again is that each tribe had a seat at the table. They all belonged. Now, this was also his very physical provision. The priests are told later to eat the bread. God was their daily bread, their sustainer. And so I think what we see with this eating is important as we look back even at recent weeks. Um, Back to Pastor Jeff's, the, the Lord is my banner. They gathered for a meal, that picture of the final meal. But then as they were at the mountain, they had a meal with God. We talked about, right? They ate. They also ate. To help be a, a part of that worship service and sealing the covenant. And so this, this provision of, of bread, the sustainer of the meal, also shows us this fellowship. That they could sit with God and eat. And so his fellowship with the people is displayed through the provision. Provision of this bread. And so when we think about these three things, when it starts from just general sacrifice, to everyday sacrifice, to those just provisionary aspects of who God is and what He does, how do you remember His provision? How do you remember His provision? How have you seen His provision in your life? Do you take note of those things? It's so important for us to not just have a heart of gratitude for those, but to notice them in the first place. Be looking for those things that God gives and does for us. When you think about the table for the bread, of course, in John chapter 6, Jesus tells us that God is the one who gives bread from heaven. And the true bread is Himself. Jesus is the bread of life. I think it's also interesting to remember that Jesus said that His food was to do the will of the Father. And we think about remembering provision. We know that when we're doing the will of God, we will be sustained. We also see that God has provided all of our daily needs and has provided us ultimately with this bread of life, Jesus Christ. Everything that we have is from his hand. He is a generous giver that we might be generous to others. He doesn't ask for much. He wants us to steward and care for ourselves. Look out for your own interests. But he gives us enough also to look out for the interests of others. To see that He has provided everything that we need for today, for tomorrow. Each day, as we talked about before, brings new mercies. He wants us to care for others as He has cared for us. I hope you can see the provision of the Father. Next thing I want you to see is the presence of the Father. The presence of the Father. The first aspect here as we kind of move through these instructions is the idea of the guarded court. The guarded court or courtyard. And the way that this is designed is that the tabernacle would be at the center of all the tribes. That they would be encamped around the tabernacle. The tabernacle would be in the middle. And so it's important for us to see that though God would dwell in the middle of the Israelite encampment, it was clear that He was still separate from them. He was still separate from them. There were... Walls and curtains that would guard and separate his presence from them. He's there, but still separate. You see, around the tent was a fence. And inside of that fence was about 10,000 square feet that the whole tabernacle was inside. The fence was the outer barrier or wall, as it were. But inside, about 10,000 square feet, uh, we have the bronze altar and the inside of it at the at the one entrance, there's only one entrance in the east, just as at the Garden of Eden. And we're going to talk about the bronze altar next, but the materials for the court were just like those used on the tent. It's a reminder for those who would enter of what was before them, preparing them for the glory ahead. So it's a large space, and so there's only one entrance. Everyone has to walk around to get to it. And as you walk around, you see and start to prepare for the glory that lies ahead. Now similar to the experience at the mountain, on the mountain, Moses went up and experienced God's presence. At the tabernacle, only the high priest could enter the most holy place. On the mountain, the elders were able to go up halfway, and at the tabernacle, the priests are able to go about halfway into the holy place. On the mountain, the people waited at the bottom of the mountain, and at the tabernacle, the people were only able to enter as far as the courtyard inside the tent, though, Israel as a whole was separated from the world. And so what this guarded court does this fence around there and the courtyard itself does is it shows us that there are limitations on interacting with God. There are limitations on interacting with God for the people. They needed the high priest for us, We have the great high priest who works on our behalf and enables us to approach the throne of grace, not with trepidation, but with confidence. The blood has been paid. We can come with confidence. How can we come with confidence? Through the bronze altar. The bronze altar is the next component. And we see that this really provided entrance into God's presence, but it was through a sacrifice. It was through a sacrifice. The bronze altar was the first thing that you would encounter as you came in that one entrance into the courtyard so that the people would be faced with it first. It was not small by any measure. It was seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet deep, and four and a half feet high. It was made of acacia wood, the same as the the table. But instead of being covered with gold, it was covered in bronze. And all the utensils were made out of bronze. Gold was only used inside the tabernacle. Now this, I didn't know this before, could be moved. It also had poles just like the Ark of the Covenant did, so that they could take the presence of the Lord with them. He was always with them. We have the same promise. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. It could be moved just like that. Now, what was it for? What was its function? It was constructed so that they could make sacrifices, because communion with God requires sacrifice. The altar was the first thing that they would see when entering. And so it would be a reminder to them that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the people were reminded of that as soon as they saw it. We know that Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the only one to bridge the gap between man and God. The Gospel reminds us of these truths. But more importantly for us, when we encounter each other on Sunday, when we join together to meet God on Sundays, we have the Lord's Supper. It gives us a holy ordinance to remember this same truth. We approach God only because of blood. Christ's blood is that of the new covenant that we have. And so His body was torn for us and His blood was poured for us. It's only through Him that we have access to God. It's only by laying blood on this bronze altar that they could enter in to the tabernacle. Next thing I want you to see is the golden lampstand. The golden lampstand. This was actually inside of the tabernacle. It was in the holy place, that middle kind of corridor, uh, or that surrounded rather the holy, the most holy place. And so this was in that kind of second outside thing. Uh, I'm confusing. Courtyard on the outside, holy place on the middle, and then at the center, you have the most holy place. That's where the ark resided. And so in that kind of middle area where the table of the bread was, you have the golden lampstand and it was positioned exactly across from that that the light might shine onto that. Now this lampstand wasn't just functional and providing light for the inside. It was made, handcrafted from 75 pounds of pure gold. That's massive. It's massive, it's heavy, It's incredible. 75 pounds of pure gold to create this lampstand. Lit the table, lit the interior of the temple. But what it does, I, I think, is arguably other than the ark, of course, is probably, I think, the coolest picture of the tabernacle. Because throughout Scripture, we see that God is light. God is light. He is light, and His light symbolizes His presence, And His holiness in particular. We see in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, that the removal of a lampstand means God's presence has departed, has been removed. And so the priests are to keep this lamp burning continually, signifying the continual presence of God. God is, always has been, and forever will be the light of the world. God is, always has been, and forever will be the light of the world. I think it's so beautiful of a picture for the Israelites at night. It's on the inside of the tabernacle, so it's not, it's not out front for everyone to see. But it illuminates this, this tent. And at night, you, you wonder if the presence of God is there, and you look out in the distance at the tabernacle, and you see it lit. And you remember that God's presence is here. He's still with us. It's such a beautiful picture for, for the people who never got to go in to the holy place. They were limited to the courtyard to be able to see at all times the presence of God. So for us, as we think about what this looks like now, what lampstand do we have? Well, this light later came to live among us as the light of men and Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 4. But we also know that the light of men was also life. You see, light is often related to life. Psalm 36 verse 9 says, For with you is life's fountain. In your light we will see light. The scriptures tell us that God is both light and life. He created life and light. He sustains life and light. He offers hope of life and light in him. Now, Israel was called to reflect his light To the nations and be an example of what life would be to them. We likewise are to show the glory of God in word and deed. We must fight to keep that light shining brightly. And God has blessed us in allowing us to reflect the light of His glory. It's not our own. That's what our self-righteousness tries to do. We get to reflect the light of Christ. We see the presence of the Father. Next thing I want you to see is the propitiation of the Father. The propitiation of the Father. I've always explained to people the word propitiation. It's not a fancy theological term. It's in your Bibles. What does it mean? It means bounty, the, the Quicker the quilted quicker picker-upper, or as I would say, the quilted quicker wrath absorber. When we think of propitiation, we think of a sponge. We think of something that absorbs, that soaks up. And in this case, it's the cup of wrath It soaks up all the wrath. And in this case, for us, we have Jesus. Jesus is our propitiation. He's our wrath absorber. He is the sponge that soaks up the cup of God's wrath. And so we see the propitiation, not just in Jesus, but back here in Exodus. Where do we see this wrath absorbing coming from? We see it particularly with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. You see, it was at the Ark of the Covenant that God would meet with and speak to Moses. It has been on the mountain. Where there was the burning bush the first time or the burning mountain the second time. But now at the Ark of the Covenant, it's the only furniture in the most holy place the presence of God would dwell particularly powerfully in this one spot when God descended. It required two poles for transport to prevent any man from directly touching the ark, for if they touched it, they would die. The mercy seat, or the atonement cover, served as a lid on the ark, and it was here that the Lord met with His people. It was ultimately His mercy that would be revealed here on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest made reparation for the people by sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. There, finally, was a way for God to be specifically present with His people, even to commune with them, even to commune with them, to be with him like He did in the garden. Now, unlike the garden, this could only take place one day a year. One day a year. And unlike the garden, it had to now be through blood. Through the atonement cover, through the mercy seat, God revealed that sinners cannot come to God without a mediator. At the mercy seat, God and sinners met. It was there. And so what happens? Well, on top of the mercy seat, the the, the lid, the cover, on top of the mercy seat, cherubim, two angels of gold, faced each other, but with their faces cast downwards. They were bowed down. Angels have to bow down before God. They certainly are powerful beings, but they still bow down in the face of God. There are warriors in Genesis 3 that protect Eden with flaming swords, but they look down to the cover. Inside the ark was the Ten Commandments. There was an urn or a pot full of manna, and then there was Aaron's rod, and his rod had budded with new life. Those things are all contained inside the ark and these served as reminders of where the Lord had brought them. He was faithful and He was worthy of worship. And it was by the blood of an animal sprinkled on top of the ark the cherubim looked down through blood to the law that men would meet God, that sin would be atoned for. This is how... We get to meet God by blood. But it's no longer through the ark. It's no longer through the ark. For the people there, the propitiation, the, the turning of wrath away from the Israelites happened at the mercy seat. We know that the mercy seat was temporary. For now we have our once and for all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. So if we want to continue to see this interaction and and bring this home. The last thing that I want you to see in our passage is the tabernacle structure. Just the way that the whole thing is laid out. I I was trying to not jump to it earlier. I explained some of it. But the tabernacle structure, just the way that it is laid out, the way that it's composed, I think is really important for us to see. And it involves this idea of propitiation, of, of the way that we're able to meet God on His terms despite sin. And it's this. When you look at the structure of the tabernacle, you see that cherubim were also, not just on the mercy seat, but woven into the curtain. Woven into the curtain on the tent to protect the entrance to God's presence. Just like Eden, again. Just as there were cherubim at the outside of Eden keeping people from coming in, there are now cherubim woven into the curtain to protect the entrance to God's presence. And it's meant to remind us of paradise lost. It's meant to remind us of Eden. Though God would dwell among them, access to Him is still limited. God's presence was guarded. But what's interesting in this case is that you don't have real cherubim stopping people from coming in. In this case, you have curtains that are constructed not to keep people out of God's presence anymore. A curtain is somewhere that you can pass through. But what this curtain does is actually not protect the people uh, from getting into God's presence, but rather from God's presence destroying the people, (laughs) destroying the people. This does create separation. This does create right division between the holy of holies, the most holy place where God is and his presence is protects the people from his presence. And so there were three. Divisions On the outside, you have the courtyard and the middle ring, you have the holy place, and then in the most center place, the most holy place. And that final separation into the holy place was a veil. And we've talked about that length already. And so here, in this design and construction of the tabernacle, we see a parallel with Eden. Now, I want to draw these out for us so that we can see the parallel emphasis. Because the whole point of God dwelling with them was the idea that they could return to Eden, where they could commune with God as it was intended from the beginning. So let's look at these parallels. There were seven speaking acts of creation in both. There were seven speaking acts in creation, and there were seven speaking acts where God says to Moses something in the creation of the tabernacle. Another parallel is that both were the place where God would dwell in the midst of his people and Moses. Moses. Another one, both indicated the quality of the creation after a time of observing what was made. In the tabernacle, there was a time after it was made and Moses would then declare it a blessed place. In creation, God finished, observed, saw what he did and he called it very good. Another parallel, both of them end with a focus on the Sabbath. Creation ends with God resting and in our passage, you see this institution of the Sabbath as the covenant symbol. Another one, there's a fall that follows both narratives. There's a fall that follows creation. There's a fall that follows the tabernacle. Where people try to substitute creation for God. man with his idolatrous heart is prone to substitute something or someone else, anything, for God. And the final parallel is this. Both narratives, the creation and the tabernacle, have cherubim guarding the presence to God at the east entrance. But now in Exodus, the cherubim are welcoming people back into the Eden, welcoming them back in to the presence of God through blood at the atonement seat. There are even some commentators that would suggest that the lampstand was a type of tree of life. And I I think what's, what's beautiful about these parallels is that you see that this is a kind of step towards paradise regained. It's a step back to this pattern of the kingdom of Eden. The breach that had caused separation. The taking of the tree that had broken fellowship between man and God. Necessitated the shedding of blood for the covering of the body. And casting them out of the presence, out of the garden was now being overturned, slowly. This was a step towards realizing the final dwelling place of God and man. I think it's interesting that in the book of Hebrews, which we've alluded to a lot in this series, in the book of Hebrews, they see the tabernacle as not only looking forward, of course, to to Christ, but also as, as looking up. It's not just back into Eden, forward to Christ, but also looking up. You see, the tabernacle was a copy of the throne room of God. We're now seeing how God will make a way for us into that throne room. It's such a beautiful picture that God has created a place and a way for the Israelites to begin back into communion with Him. You see, at the beginning of the book, they called out, not necessarily as as Pastor John pointed out, to God, to Yahweh, but then... They got to meet and know the name of Yahweh. They got to meet I Am. Then they got to hear Him. Some of them got to see Him. And now they are back into relationship covenant with Him and communion with Him. And we get to see that this isn't this is the end. One day we will be in this same kind of setting, but it's His throne room. He is making a way for us back into that throne room. And so we started with the idea of there and back again and knowing God. And how do you know God? Do you know Him in these ways as He's revealed Himself, as He mandates, as He says, this is how you get to know Me. This is how you are in relationship with Me. This is the expectation. Or do you do those things? Because Jesus tells us that if we have seen Him, we have seen the Father, if we know Him, we know God. And Jesus has fulfilled all of these things that we talked about. I, I wanted to illustrate those for you as we walked. But at the end of the day, we, just, we started with John 14. Let's go one more chapter, John 15. Flip there with me. One of my favorite passages in the Scriptures. It's, it's something that I revisit pretty much yearly. John 15, starting in verse 1. Through verse 17, this is how we can know God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 4, abide in me, and I in you. and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. You see, we, we were there. We were in Eden. How do we get back to communion with God? He made a way. He made a way in the tabernacle. He made a way to start overturning that separation from Him, that we might be in His presence again, that sin might be paid for, atoned for at the mercy seat. And then ultimately we see that the tabernacle was simply a type because what does John 1 tell us? Jesus, the light of the world, tabernacled, made His dwelling in, put on flesh, tabernacled among us, lived among us. And to what end? John 14, that we can know the Father And how do we do that? By abiding. By abiding. In the same way that the Israelites would abide with the presence of God at the tabernacle in the camp, we draw near, as we've talked about, and abide in Jesus. So how are you knowing God? To the extent that you abide in Christ. Let that be your focus this week. Let that be the way you engage the Scriptures. Let that be the way you engage each other. Drawing one another to abide. That your fruit overflows, that people might give glory to the Father. That's what the tabernacle is for. Let us see the provision of the Father. He gave us Christ. Let us see the presence of the Father. He has put the Spirit inside of us. And let us see the propitiation of the Father. He has absorbed all the wrath on our behalf. And it's through Him we can know Him. We can be there and back again. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You so much. We thank You so much that You made a way. Father, let us not take Hugh for granted. Father, there is an ordinariness, as we talked about, to what we do. But Father, let us not take that ordinary life for granted. You've made a way for us to come back to You, for us to honor You, for us to love You. <laughs> Jesus says that we would just love Him. And Father, we know from the Torah that You call us to love You. That's the greatest commandment. But let us do that by abiding in Your Son. Father, He has earned it all on our behalf. He has provided a way. He, we didn't choose Him. He chose us. Let us rest in that. Let us abide in that. That's the Sabbath picture that we might rest and abide in Him. Let us trust Him and find our home in Him that we might know You. Father, we love You. We pray all this in His name that we may enter the throne room. In Jesus Christ's name, Amen.